0: This is a special night and a special celebration that we have. We get to celebrate Jesus dying on the cross for us. But over the last number of years, this time right now has been more and more under attack and seen as more and more unnecessary. And the question that's often asked by those who look at the cross of Jesus Christ is the one that we're going to be talking about tonight as we think about what this time really means. Is sin really this bad? And really when we ask the question, is sin really this bad, what we're really asking, if we want to be very honest about it, is Are we really this bad? And more and more, our culture, even those who would say they identify as Christian, are in denial of the necessity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want to read to you Just to give an idea of some of the conversations that are out there right now. Of why others do not believe that this sacrifice is necessary and what is lost as a result of that. It's an article, a lengthy one. I'm going to be reading good portions of it from the United Methodist Insight. And this is from 10 years ago. Dated 2013. And the article is titled, Confronting Atonement Theology. These ideas that are in this article that I'll be talking about are now in the mainstream. You can see them online everywhere. And so it's important, I believe, for us to understand the implications of the theology that is out there. At the end of his opening paragraph, as he begins to give his thesis on this, this man, whose name is Eric Fokereth, says, skipping to the punchline, I am not a fan of atonement theology. Frankly, almost all of it. And here are some reasons why and some things that I believe Instead. And from there, he begins to talk about Abraham and Isaac and, and the sacrifice that Abraham had told Isaac, had told, uh, God had told Abraham to give of his son Isaac and how God spared him from giving his son and substituted a ram instead. At the end of this account, he says, but ultimately God is not a God who requires parents to sacrificially kill their children. If this is so, then how in God's name did we get to a point where God would require a sacrifice of God's own child? Given the witness of Scripture, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Are we to believe that God is kinder and gentler to us than God is to his own child? And if Jesus is to be affirmed as the Son of God, or from a Trinitarian point of view, a part of God, then how are we to understand this? I mean, if Jesus is both God and human, if we really affirm the orthodox view, and if we really believe that the atoning sacrifice was somehow cosmically necessary, then isn't the logical conclusion that God not only wanted to kill God's own child, but even more horrifyingly to kill God's own self? Jurgen Moltmann once wrote a book called The Crucified God, which is a pretty decent defense of atonement theology, but assuming the Trinitarian view, isn't it more chillingly the suicidal God? This clearly makes no sense. Well, meaning Christians step up to this whore, wince a little, shrug their shoulders and declare, well, it's just one of those mysteries of faith too deep for us to understand. But no, it isn't. In my view, it simply cannot be what God intended. It is not to say that Jesus does not save or that Jesus was not God's son. But it is to say that it is not what God required of Jesus. It's not a cosmically necessary or required of God or Jesus in order to be effectively save human beings or the world. He goes on to share from the Gospel of Luke at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, how he opens up the scroll to Isaiah in Isaiah 61 and talks about proclaiming the good news. And he ends that paragraph by saying, from the very beginning, Jesus is clear that his mission is to bring good news to people. From the very beginning, it is clear this message might well get him killed, not killed for some cosmic necessity reason, no, because it was a threat to many other human beings who didn't like it. The Gospel of John repeats this powerful truth in a verse that everybody who watches sports knows by heart. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that's, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. God gave God's son. Gave to the world. Gave as a messenger of this incredible good news. The same good news of Luke chapter 4 gave to walk among us full of grace and truth. But please note what this verse does not say. It does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to be crucified and die so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Obviously, I added that little part. But I added it because a lot of well-meaning Christians also add it. When they say this verse, they are thinking the line I've added in. I call it John 3, 16b, except it's not there. It's not part of that verse, but many of us act like it is. God gave Jesus to live for our sins, not to die for them. God gave Jesus to reconcile and make new the covenant between God and Jesus. A little further on, he asks the question, so if not atonement, then what? What? Christ's faithfulness, even to the point of death, on the cross marks not a divine command for retribution, but a divine refusal to hold our rebellion against us. God offers us life and we reject it. God continues to offer it in the form of love incarnate and we crucify him. Yet even now, God will not lash out against us, but instead raises Jesus up and sends him back with the same offer of life. Christ is God bearing offense, even the offense of the cross, without holding it against us, without giving up on us, without exacting comp- or inflicting retribution instead continuing to extend the offer of communion christ's work of atonement including the cross is nothing less than god refusing our refusal christ is god rejecting our rejection and instead continuing to offer to give us life and love even after we have crucified him God was able to turn what human beings intended for evil into something good. God turned that death into the ultimate symbol of God's triumph over human evil. I personally believe that God and Jesus had something very different in mind for Jesus' earthly ministry. I believe it's wrapped up in the Palm Sunday story. God and Jesus intended that to be a grand entrance of Jesus into the seat of power, bringing that good news into the very heart of political and religious authority that this was a threat to the powers that be, so they had Jesus killed. As John Dominic Crossan says, in much of his writings, Jesus was crucified, not stoned. He he pushed some sort of limit that made him a threat to Roman political power. Crucifixion was something only the Romans did. This could have been the end of the story, but it was not. God's powerful message of resurrection is that no matter what evil the world can dish out, God will respond in love. Again, hear, the bell, hear, hear what Bell describes as the beauty and the power of God's good news. God will not lash out against us, but instead raises Jesus up and sends him back with the same offer of life. Christ's work of atonement, including the cross, is nothing less than God refusing our refusal. Christ is God rejection, rejecting our rejection. And at the end of this article, he says this, he culminates it. By saying, God so loved the world that God sent Jesus into the world with a message of good news. Not so that Jesus would die, but so that all who believed would find life, wholeness, and love. This is a more popularized view of what the cross of Jesus Christ now is believed by many people in America. And this was 10 years ago, and it's just now becoming very popularized. Three points of this article was that Jesus' sacrifice was not a cosmic necessity. Second point of his article was that God had something different for Jesus' earthly ministry in mind. And the third one was that God rejects our rejection and quoting John 3.16 says that others who have interpreted it as the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice have done so wrong. And he comes to that conclusion for at the end, he states, for God so loved the world that God sent Jesus into the world with a message of good news, not so Jesus would die, but so all who believed would find life, wholeness, and love. This is what happens with the minimization when we minimize the cross of Jesus Christ. When we do that, we find that the death of Jesus is unnecessary. When we do that, we see that Jesus was only coming to serve as an example. When we do that, we even point to the idea of the cruelty of God for even thinking about some sort of cosmic child abuse with his son. And the effect of this minimization is is not a small thing. It it basically says that sin, and, and as a result, not just sin, but we are not that bad.
1: Jesus didn't need to die for us.
0: So we're not in that much of a desperate need for him. As a matter of fact, if you'll remember, in the article it says, Jesus came not to die for our sins, but to live for them. Because the result is this, that Jesus now, as a reconciliation to God, demands nothing from you on the other end of that. The other end of that equation is that he died to bring reconciliation so that you can live however you want. These are dangerous ideas. They go against what this entire day is about. And this has been
1: preached in churches
0: and in the popular culture. Where many of you may see the memes out there that say the exact same things that this Methodist preacher said 10 years ago. It reduces God to only a God of love. Making the same mistake the crowds did during Jesus' triumphal entry. For those of you here on Palm Sunday, we talked about that. We talked about the difference between the vision of the people, including the disciples, of what they thought Jesus was going to be walking into Jerusalem because they had taken a caricature of what Jesus had actually said and only taken those things that they wanted to hold on to rather than the whole of what Jesus had said about himself. And those who say the same thing about the atonement of Christ during this time do the exact same disservice. They want to see Jesus. They want to see God as
1: a God of love. And this doesn't seem very loving.
0: What is so ironic is that by cherry-picking the attributes that they like about God, they actually exclude the grace and love that Jesus came to display that we celebrate this day. And so for the next few moments, I want us to consider what the Word of God actually says concerning our sin and the condition that it's placed us in. You know, throughout that article, it's a twelve page article, he only makes three references in the scripture. One is an allusion to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac that God intervened with in Genesis chapter twelve, twenty two, excuse me. The second one is what he sees as the, the culmination of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of his ministry, where he makes the proclamation by enrolling the scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4 and reading from Isaiah 61. And the third one is the quoting of John 3:16. But what does the Word of God really say about our condition? About sin, and what it really does for us. Let's take a look at some places and come to some conclusions that might surprise this Methodist preacher. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins We are enemies of God. We are objects of wrath. We have walked in gratifying our sinful nature and put ourselves at odds with the creator of the universe. Colossians one
1: twenty one says this,
0: Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Alienated. Away. Apart. Our evil behavior. Did that. Now I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty dire situation to me, doesn't it? That doesn't look like a little slap on the wrist is going to get it over with. As a matter of fact, as we read more, we, we consider our condition is even worse than what we thought. Because John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, we quote John 3, 16. But if we look at the end of that very chapter, John's testimony about Jesus At the very end of the chapter, verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That the condition for you and me is that the only thing that you and I deserve because of our sin is the wrath of God. It's not that we are making God mad, and we can do that, we have to understand there is no remedy for this anger, this rightful wrath, because we have made ourselves an enemy of the one who created us. And Hebrews chapter 10 paints this picture pretty completely. Verse 26 who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living
1: God. To sweep this under the rug? And to say that this is not cosmically necessary is a repudiation of everything the Word of God says.
0: Within Jesus' ministry, after his ministry, looking back and seeing the sacrifice and the necessity for you and me to need the redemption that comes through the one who would bring
1: peace. So it seems to me that he's wrong on his first point.
0: Second point, God had something different in mind. That this isn't the way that God wanted it to go. It just kind of happened this way. And God rolled with the punches. That's kind of where I get with when I read this article. God kind of knows what he's doing. He's kind of in charge of everything. And and yeah, it didn't go exactly the way he wanted, but he worked with it anyway. Because that's what God does. Would it surprise you to learn that God had planned for our redemption through Jesus before the creation of the world? Before Jesus ever walked this earth, God had already proclaimed through the prophets that this is the way and the reason for which he would come. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 20 says this. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Did you guys get that? That Jesus was chosen as a lamb for sacrifice for you and me. When? Before the creation of the world. Before Adam and Eve existed. Before God and his Trinitarian union said, Let there be light. There was agreement that Jesus would come as the lamb to be sacrificed for you and me. We cannot look at Good Friday as God's plan B, or C, or D, as if he has to roll with the punches. God eternally knew he was sending Jesus for you and me at the moment of creation. That's an amazing thing. Words of Isaiah that we quote so many times during this time. Of the intention of the Lord's servant. That God had provided. And was going to provide. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all.
1: It seems to me God knew exactly the purpose for which Jesus was coming.
0: But did Jesus know that? Is this just God the Father proclaiming these things? Matthew chapter 20 verses 26 through 28. The disciples as they're getting near Jerusalem toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Right before he's walking in for the triumphal entry. They start bantering back and forth about who's going to be the greatest. We talked about this on Palm Sunday. And he confronts them and he talks to them. He's like, one who wants to be greatest among you must be a servant. That's what he says in verse 26. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It seemed like he was acutely aware of his
1: mission. John chapter 10.
0: We see Jesus handling another one of these charges as he talks about himself being the gate and the good shepherd. We find that Jesus isn't A helpless little boy laid down on the altar like Abraham and Isaac. Rather, he's God incarnate. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. That paints a totally different picture, doesn't it? Even as we come to the cross today, even as we look at the sin that put him there, he is not a helpless boy on the cross placed there by a cruel father. He is God incarnate who has decided from eternity past that he has agreed for the redemption of man to be placed there and has been given the command by his father both to be able to lay down his life and to pick it up again. And in the ensuing days, Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read some excerpts of this without necessarily spoiling the ending. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there these days? What things he asked about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Skipping down a little bit. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So it seemed like Jesus is very clear about the purpose for which he has come. That he understands that he is giving his life as a ransom for many. And this was planned from eternity past before the creation of the world and is consistent in the Old Testament and in the new during the life of Jesus and after his resurrection. Everything points to the fact of the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross for you and me. And he knew. And I find it very ironic Because point three, God rejects our rejection. And he quotes John 3.16. John 3.16 doesn't say that Jesus was going to die for our sins, but John 14 and 15 does. John 3.14 and 15, excuse me, just a few verses above. You know, context is everything, right? We shouldn't be reading scripture without the context of what's before it and what's after it. So let's take a look at the whole of John 3.16 and the verses that surround it. And we're going to get a totally different picture of what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus concerning what's going to happen with him and what that means for you and me. I'm going to start in 13. It says, no one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This conversation that Jesus changes and says, I want to tell you about heavenly things that no one has been to heaven and seen God except for the one who came from heaven. That's me. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What is he referencing? He is referencing the time of unbelief in the wilderness as the Israelites rebelling against God. God sends poisonous snakes into that area and they get bitten and many of them die. And as they're crying out to God in repentance, God gives Moses an instruction to create a bronze snake on a pole that it would be standing up there and people looking in faith would be healed if they were bitten by a viper that God had sent among them. It was a means of salvation by looking to the one who was raised up. And Jesus, the only time he is raised up in like manner is on the cross. And so while John 3.16 doesn't talk about the crucifixion and there's no John 3.16b that does so John 3.14 and 15 sure do. And how ironic that that's right before John 3.16. That salvation that you and I quote from that cannot be separated from his work on the cross for you and me. You see, trying to make God only a God of love hides both our desperate need and the true love and grace Jesus shown by his sacrifice on the cross. God's love is demonstrated in Christ because he takes that punishment that is deserved by you and me upon himself. Because we're enemies of God. Because we're dead in our transgressions and our sin. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way. And God, in his mercy and grace, has laid upon him the iniquity
1: of us all. Because sin really is this bad. We are far worse than we could
0: ever imagine. We are rightfully condemned before a holy God because of our rebellion. However, we're more loved than we could ever dream of because of what Jesus has done for you and me on the cross.
1: Romans chapter 5, I think, puts this
0: so well. Starting in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when, you were still, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him?
1: Powerless, ungodly, enemies. And God did this for us. That's what we celebrate today.
0: That's what this day is all about that's the sacrifice of jesus christ and anything less than that cheapens what god did for us in christ jesus
1: it's why this day is so special it is finished it means something Because our need was this great.
0: If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, the celebration, this time that we have together, it is for you to remember
1: what Jesus has done for us.
0: The elements of the bread, the elements of the juice, his body and blood are at the tables here in the front. We want to give you an opportunity for a final act of worship today. In our time of Good Friday, as we contemplate, as we think about what Jesus really has done for us. And you can take your time.
1: Stay in your seat and pray.
0: Take the elements back to your seat to pray. Take the elements and go back and and, and sit down and, and spend that time glorifying God because of what he has done through Jesus Christ our Lord.
1: Because that's what this day is all about.
0: This is our final act of worship today. And when you are done, we would ask very politely that you would Whenever you're done with the time of taking the elements, praying, please walk quietly out into the foyer. You can congregate there and talk out there, but let others, as they are continuing to worship, stay in here.
1: Because this is what Good Friday is all about. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this day.
0: Thank you that because Jesus' sacrifice wiped us clean of the debt that we owed you that we could not pay. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, we will not take this lightly, that we will not see it as not something that was not a necessity. Your word says throughout the scripture, it was a necessity that you prepared for it. Even before the creation of the world, you had planned for Jesus to come as a sacrificial lamb for us. Thank you, Lord. Jesus is not plan B. He was always
1: the only plan. God, I pray in the name of Jesus as we consider that today. And as we take these elements, Lord, that we
0: would be grateful anew for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. That we celebrate this day at this time. In Jesus'
1: name, amen.